Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to first... Well, actually, by way of introduction, let's look at first uh, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 for our message this morning, which is going to... Our text, is, as you see in the bulletin, is... Uh, Philippians, I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, but by way of introduction, I just want us to look at these last couple of verses in chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 20 and 21. Paul says this, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now, this uh, statement at the end of chapter 3 is in contrast to the preceding verses where Paul is describing the many who walk contrary to the pattern of Christ. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are those who set their minds on earthly things, and, and we are citizens of heaven. Paul was concerned, as he writes at the end of chapter 3 here, that the Philippians' expectation, their anticipation and looking ahead to heaven had dropped off, and he doesn't want them, doesn't want us, to lose sight of the prize. And so he reminds us that while we live every day in the already reality of our faith and, and our union with Christ, you know, we've laid hold of him through faith in his work on the cross. Nevertheless, the, the accent of our lives really needs to fall on the not yet, what is to come. Uh, we need to be looking ahead with anticipation toward the future. Christ is presently crowned with glory and sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is now reigning in heaven with sovereign power, and you and I are to eagerly await his return to, uh, to earth. And when he comes, Paul reminds us, he will transform us into his likeness so that our present bodies in all of their weakness and their humiliation and will then be conformed to the likeness of his present and glorified body. So the church, really, as a whole, as a, as a, as a body, is a future-oriented people. We are future-oriented people. And as we said last Sunday, you and I are to live as people who not only have a, a past in Christ um, through the cross, but we also have a future with Christ as well. Our citizenship is in heaven, ultimately. And most of us... Uh, most of you, I believe, are citizens of the United States, and, and no doubt there's a sense of uh, loyalty that comes with that citizenship to this land and this people and even a shared ideal. But the greater reality is that we are subjects of our heavenly Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that, that is uppermost. And, um, and so, you know, our true commonwealth exists in glory in heaven and not any nation here on earth. If you put your faith in Christ this morning, you're a citizen of that heavenly commonwealth. Even as you and I await what is to come, which has not been fully realized. The, the opening statement of verse 20 in Philippians 3 reminds us where our allegiance should fall ultimately. It's not with a president or some political party or some ethnicity or some earthly nation. Our allegiance ultimately is to none other than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our King. We are citizens of heaven first and foremost. And Paul says right now, you and I are to be eagerly awaiting the glories of that future reality. In fact, one of the defining descriptions of believers in the New Testament 
used, you know, in a handful of different places is God's people are those who eagerly await future heavenly glory, right? So uh, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says the Corinthian believers were those who says, quote, are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Hebrews 9 and verse 28 says, The writer um, describes those for whom Christ died as those who eagerly await him. I mean, that's a, it's kind of a term to describe us as, as Christians. Or in Romans 8 and verse 25, speaking of the hope of eternity that you and I carry with us as believers, he says it is a hope that we wait for eagerly. Same, you know, adverb, same descriptor for our... Uh, for us, we are to be looking forward to eternity with expectation. There's meant, there's meant to be a sense of a palpable anticipation as we think about heaven and glory. It should fill up our hearts, and it ought to occupy our minds. As J.C. Ryle lamented, he says, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. And tragically, I think Ryle would have to show pity to many of us because Reality is we simply don't stop to meditate upon and excite ourselves about glory, about eternity. Uh, We're so busy trying to make heaven here on earth that we never actually take a step back to remind ourselves that, hey, wait, this is not our home. We are, as, as Peter says, sojourners, aliens and strangers in this present life in this present world. And even in those rare moments where we do think about Christ's return and we do think about eternity, you know, oftentimes what we think about it is not biblical or it's not complete. And so it makes us harder to look for it with anticipation and expectation. I love the Far Side comic, right? The Far Side comic is, I think it's done now, right? I don't, I don't think the guys, Gary Larson's still writing those, but there's a, is a, Farside comic that captures some of the um, common misperceptions of heaven. Uh, and and in, in this um, one frame comic is a man with angel wings and a halo, and he's sitting on a cloud doing nothing, and, um, and no one's around, and his face has the expression of someone who's kind of lost on a desert island and uh, with absolutely nothing to do. And the caption underneath says, uh, I wish I'd brought a magazine, right? And, and that's, the, that's the picture, right? That's how many of God's people think about eternity. They, they think about it in terms of we all just have wings and we're, we're floating around on clouds and, um, and we're strumming harps just staring at the face of Jesus or that it's some kind of never-ending church service that just goes on forever and ever. And, and we think about heaven in those kind of cliche and unbiblical ways that's not very exciting. That's not very, uh, it's nothing to be really looking forward to. And the reason that doesn't sound exciting is because that is not how God has created us, nor is it how he will perfect us and what glory will be. Randy Alcorn brings, I think, this out very thoughtfully with, a, with an illustration in his book entitled Heaven. He says, we don't desire to eat gravel. Why? Because God didn't design us to eat gravel. So trying to develop an appetite for a disembodied existence in a non-physical heaven is like trying to develop an appetite for gravel. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how hard we try, it's not going to work, nor should it. And his point is simply this, we don't eagerly await eternity because we have such a distorted view of it. We, we don't understand it. 
And, and even what we do understand is not accurate, and so it, it zaps any God-given appetite that we have for the future. And as we learned last week, doctrine is destiny. What we believe matters, and what we believe about eternity will affect how we live even now. And, so, and that was the issue in Corinth. There, there were some believers who were wrongly claiming that there is no resurrection, that was the issue that chapter 15 is addressing. And perhaps part of that belief was that the whole idea seemed incomprehensible to them. They couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so in ignorance and in probably a lot of pride, they began to doubt the resurrection. They began to doubt and denigrate the idea of bodily existence in eternity. They turned their back on the church's clear testimony about Christ's resurrection, about our resurrection that's all over um, the, New, the Old Testament scriptures, and they said, how can we possibly rise from the grave when our bodies have returned to the dust? That was the, the question. And if, as you claim, Paul, that our bodies are raised at the end of the age, well, what kind of body is it? That, those are the questions that were swirling around, the objections that were being brought forward, and those are objections that are still alive and well now. I mean, as you think about it, in the modern era, um, those who have a, a, an entirely secular kind of worldview say, well, that just seems ridiculous. And rather than ask Paul to say, well, what, how should we understand this? The Corinthians then shaped their theology around their experience and their intuition when they should have done the opposite. We are to shape our uh, experience and intuition around biblical theology, not the other way around. Paul finds it absolutely astonishing that they're denying the resurrection. First, because the message of the gospel is itself a message that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised. So if you say there's no resurrection, then um, that's kind of important for the gospel. And if that's what they claim to believe, that would be incredibly contradictory. Second, he's astonished that they deny the resurrection because that carries such massive consequences, which we saw laid out in verses 12 to 19. It is to invalidate our preaching. It undermines our faith. It discredits our testimony. He says it abandons us to our sin and ultimately makes us the most pitiful, pitiable people on the planet. He's also astonished that they're denying the resurrection because it makes so much of what was going on in Corinth and in Paul's own life and ministry seem um, radically inconsistent and incoherent. And that's what we saw last Sunday. Why profess faith in Christ? Why make that faith public in the waters of baptism in hopes of, of being reunited to um, those who have died in Christ, which is probably what he means by verse 29, he says, why would you do all that? Why are you doing all that if there is no resurrection of the dead? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. And from Paul's perspective, why am, he says, why am I dying daily? Why am I putting my life on the line over and over again to preach this gospel of resurrection if the dead are not raised? He says, that just doesn't make any sense. That is completely incoherent. None of it makes any sense apart from a firm conviction a firm conviction that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And just because the Corinthians and maybe you and I have trouble wrapping our minds around what the nature of that resurrection body might be, that doesn't make it any less true or less important. I mean, I don't understand a lot of the science and math of gravity. 
I'm going to be honest with you, I barely passed high school physics, okay? But it would be absurd for me on the basis of not understanding the science and the math of gravity to say, I don't think gravity's a thing, <laughs> right? That would be insane. And, uh, and that's essentially the line of reasoning that the Corinthians were using. We don't get the resurrection, so I don't think there is one, <laughs> which is a terrible, terrible way to um, think about these things. And so what we're going to see this morning in our text in verses 35 to 49 is that this was an underlying issue for them. The underlying issue behind their denial of the resurrection was mostly motivated by a wrong understanding of what it meant. They understood it wrongly to be the reanimation of our earthly bodies. That the, the, it was that they thought resurrection entailed the resuscitation of our bodily corpse that goes into the ground, which they found either ridiculous or um, or foul, kind of defiling. So, having shown them in you know verses twelve to what is it thirty four, how their denial of the resurrection, the de- denial of the resurrection is logically and theologically and personally untenable. In verses 35 to 49, he's going to shift gears and he's going to take their, obje- uh, their objections head on. He's going to address them directly. And he's going to, in doing so, he's going to give us a preview of our resurrection body. So I want to read the text to, uh, for us this morning just by way of introduction. He says, uh, but someone will say, verse 35, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? He says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will bear also the image of the heavenly. Now, Paul's going to give us a preview of our resurrection bodies in this section, these verses. And he's going to do that first in drawing out parallels in nature, We'll see that in verses 35 to 44. And then secondly, in drawing out parallels from Scripture, the Old Testament, in verses 45 to 49. So that's that's our outline for this morning. We'll see parallels in nature that explain and preview our resurrection bodies. And uh, and then we'll see those parallels 
and, and the, the first point is going to be much larger than the second point, but uh, you see parallels from the scriptures as well. So he begins in 35 to 44 by drawing out parallels that we would understand just from nature. And again, the question is asked, and, and 35 is the question that they're asking. We don't know if it was a specific person or a specific thing they wrote. He's kind of speaking in, a, in generalities, but he says someone, whoever that person would be, would say, well, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So we have skeptics. People say, this resurrection thing sounds weird. I, I don't think that's that's possible. And, and what would that look like? You know, they, they, they understood that when you die, your body decomposes. And so the idea of that body being resurrected seemed silly. It seemed laughable to them. What kind of body could ever arise from the dust? And Paul responds to their objection in verse 36. He says, you fools, you fool. And again, there's, there's no sugarcoating this. Paul thinks that their um, objection is, is weak and worthless, and he makes that known in verse 36. He says, this is ridiculous. What Paul and the other apostles have been teaching about the resurrection is easily defensible if they would just stop and think about some of the things they do every day. I mean, the answer, he says, to your objection is literally in your hands, those of you who work with your hands. There were parallels in nature all around them. And so that leads Paul to draw out um, a number of analogies to help them see how this is totally believable and not only believable, but, but exactly how God wants us to think about our resurrection bodies. He uses uh, first an analogy between, and this is one that he'll come back to again and again, is the seed and the plant. This analogy of the seed and, and the plant. Look at verse 36. He says, that which you sow, sowing seed, does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. He says, uh, you understand sowing seed. You know that when you throw that seed onto the ground and you bury it, um, uh, it, it breaks down. It, it, the, the, the outward form of that seed changes. And the act of sowing was so similar to what happens to our bodies after we die that Paul can speak of them metaphorically as if the grain itself is dying. That's the, that's the, wor the wording that he uses here. And when that seed is buried in the earth, he says, you know, he points out the growth that follows is, is a gift of new life. But that new life doesn't come unless the grain first dies, metaphorically speaking. A seed is destroyed and what happens? New life appears. Jesus himself actually spoke about his own death and resurrection in this way in John 12, in verse 24. He says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, he says, it bears much fruit. Of course, he's referring to himself, and he also goes on to add in John 12 that uh, one who is to die uh, to their earthly life will in course, inherit eternal life. And so we are to, to die and uh, put our trust in God. He says the one who loses his life will save it. So in a way, this process, he says, is so familiar to us that um, we, we almost overlook it 
We, be, we, we fail to understand the awe of what goes on um, when we plant a seed. I mean, who would have ever guessed that throwing a little teeny tiny seed in the ground would, um, would produce a living plant? Or a little tiny acorn would give you a giant oak tree. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And yet that happens around us a thousand times every day. We all have weeds in our yard, right? Where do those come from? Seeds, little tiny seeds that from weeds that already you sprayed and killed and they come, then they still leave their seeds in the ground and they come back or birds or squirrels or who knows what. And it says, if God can cause a bare grain or a seed to die in the ground and then have that germinate and bring forth new life, he says, why would we struggle and pull back from this idea that God raising us up uh, that God could raise us up with transformed bodies. It doesn't really make any sense. A decomposition of the body is no obstacle to resurrection. It merely, in fact, prepares us for the truth that the body that God will raise up is all the more glorious than the body that goes into the earth. What dies is nothing like what appears, right? You look at the seed. You're, you're not... He's, he says, you're not planting the plant. You're not putting a stem and leaves and branches and flowers in the ground and out come another seed. His point is simple. He says, it's not the body, verse 37, that you, that what you sow is not the body of what you get back. It's just a little tiny, there's just a little tiny seed. And so it doesn't have any resemblance whatsoever to what comes out of it. There is this, so what you see in this analogy is this combination of similarity and difference. There's a, there's a distinction, there's a difference between a seed and a plant, that's obvious, we don't need to explain that. But there's a similarity as well because that seed produces you know, another of its own kind, something similar, right? So if you plant an acorn, hopefully, you get an oak tree. If you plant a, an apple seed, hopefully, You'll get an apple tree, you know, and so there's a there's this in this analogy are both the idea of similarity as well as distinction, and of course all of this is God's work. Ultimately, it's not happening by random chance. Verse thirty eight, but God gives it a body just as He wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Plants don't rise on their own, ultimately, and neither do people. They do it because that is the way God has determined it should be. This is his pattern, and he has decisively chosen how it will come to pass. That's what he means there in verse 38. So he uses this analogy of a seed and a plant. He switches to another analogy in verse 39 of flesh, meaning the physical kind of, um, you know, components of of. Uh, different things. He says, all flesh is not the same. There is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. All flesh is not the same. The flesh of human beings, animals, literally um, uh, domesticated animals, that's the word there, um, you know, uh, beasts of burden, cattle, goats, sheep, those kinds of things, not like lions and elephants, although I think it would apply. That's the word that's used here when he says animals. Uh, birds, fish, they, they're all different. Paul is, is softening up the ground, if you will, for this idea that there can be a difference between the kind of body we have before resurrection and the kind of body we will have after the resurrection. So he uses this uh, this analogy or this picture of um, 
of flesh. And then similarly, there's a difference, he says in verse 41, or verse 40, excuse me, between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Um, there's a, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one. It's one kind of glory, and the glory of the earthly is another. Now, when you read that term heavenly bodies, you're probably thinking planets and stars and comets, and that's not what he's talking about there. He's actually referring to angelic bodies, bodies in heaven. He's going to talk about sun and moon and stars in verse 41. Um, this is, he's saying the bodies of angels are fit specific to heavenly beings, and the bodies of those on earth are specific to earthly beings. They're not the same. There's a differing glory. The splendor of what's impressive about earthly beings is distinct from what's remarkable about heavenly beings. Those are, the, these two groups are different, and what makes them glorious and weighty is different as well. Again, he continues with, an, with another analogy of, this, of uh, what we would call heavenly bodies, sun and moon and stars. He says there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Sun, moon, and the stars are all wonderful. They're all magnificent, but each in its own way, each in its own, with its own distinction. Each star differs in splendor. One is more glorious than the next. Wherever Paul turns, so in looking at these analogies, wherever Paul turns, he sees evidence of this principle of differentiation. God created so many things, so many glorious things, and yet they differ from one another while simultaneously heralding the creative power and glory of God. This is Psalm 19 in verse 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And the, the earth, is the expanse, is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. I mean, the, everything in creation screams God's creative power, but it's not all the same. And there's, a, you know, that's why we love, as a family, like over the years, we've loved watching these um, these uh, Earth, like Planet Earth type series where they just, they get these super high resolution cameras and these poor souls have to sit out in the woods waiting for a bear to walk by for like three months before they finally get the shot they want. And then they put it all together with, I mean, it's just magnificent to see what God has created and, and, um, and what really goes on, things we never would see without, without their um, sacrifice, I guess, to, to record those things. It's all telling of the glory of God. So, so he lays out these analogies. But now he's going to apply those analogies in verse 42 to 44, right? He's talked about seeds and plants and heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and celestial, you know, phenomenon, sun, moon, stars, right? And he says, it's at this point now that he makes the comparison in the beginning of verse 42. He says, so also, in this way, is the resurrection of the dead, only as we come to grips with the reality of differing bodies and differing splendors are we then prepared to understand what, how we are to think about the resurrection of our bodies. So, and he does this with a series of, of uh, rapid-fire statements where he repeats, kind of unstated, these verbs, it is sown, it is raised, it is sown, it is raised. He, he applies these analogies, and in so doing, he gives us a preview a look ahead 
to our resurrection bodies. First, we see the contrast between what is perishable from uh, to what is imperishable. In verse 42, it is sown, our body, again using this metaphor of, of um, putting our body into the ground, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. So perishable refers primarily to um, our body's susceptibility to decay. Um, imperishable, this idea of imperishable, was commonly used to describe that which is eternal. So our present bodies, by, our, by their very nature, are subject to breaking down, subject to decay. The body that goes, uh, that's going to be put into the grave is a perishable body, a corruptible body. But he makes clear that the body that comes out of the grave at the resurrection is a transformed body. It's a transformed body. Um, and, and we see this pictured in Romans 8, for example, where Paul says that creation is, will one day be set free from its slavery to corruption. It's the same word, that which is per, or perishability. Same exact term as he uses here in verse 42. Into that freedom, he says, of the glory of the children of God. So when our, our resurrection bodies will be uh, raised in incorruption, uh, imperishable, never to know death or decay ever again. Secondly, he says, the second contrast he, in application he makes is he shows us that our resurrection bodies is this interplay between that with dishonor and glory. In verse 43, it is sown, our body on earth is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Now, this term dishonor is a word that's used in a range of ways in Scripture. It can sometimes refer to losing your rights to citizenship. Um, it can refer to those um, private parts of our body that we cover up and dress up, like Paul talked about back in chapter 10, uh, in chapter 8, excuse me. In, in the Old Testament, it, can, uh, it picks up this uh, idea of uncleanness, which we looked at in equipping hour. All those realities apply to our present earthly bodies. A corpse has no rights anymore. Uh, when, when, when dead, the whole body lacks honor. When the body breaks down, it conveys uncleanness to those who come in contact with it. But all of that, he says, has no relevance to the way our bodies will be raised. The resurrection body that God gives to us it will be a glorious body without any trace of dishonor, without any trace of uncleanness. It will far surpass our present bodies just as much as a plant surpasses the seed from which it comes. So he says our bodies will be raised in glory. A third contrast stands out here, and that is between weakness and power. Verse 43, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Our bodies are weak, they're frail, they're vulnerable, and they're constrained. And you can eat well, you can work out, you can put on sunscreen. Every time you step out of the house, you can get your teeth cleaned every six months. But the reality is, your body is a weak vessel. And there are so many things that we cannot do and increasingly can't do the longer we live. It's just inescapable. When our bodies die, they become the epitome of powerlessness. But, he says, our resurrection body will not be limited like this body. 
Paul says, just as surely as this body is beset with weakness, so the body that is raised will be imbued with power. This, is, this, this idea of power has to do with capacity to affect and activate what you purpose to do, what you determine to do. Martin Luther says in his comments on this, as, as weak as our bodies are now, without all power and ability, when it lies in the graves, just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives, so that not a thing will be impossible for it if it has a mind for it. And it will be so light and agile, speaking of our resurrection body, that in an instant it can float here below on earth and above in heaven. And it's a little sanctified imagination there, but but the point is that frustrated endeavors are, will be a thing of the past in a resurrection body. Incapacity, deterioration, decay, nowhere to be found when it comes to our resurrection body. Fourth, he makes a fourth analogy or application, and that is this contrast, this interplay between natural and spiritual. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Natural body has to do with this life, natural life in all of its aspects, and it stands over and against the spiritual or the supernatural life. These are the same two adjectives that Paul used back in chapter 2 to speak of believers and unbelievers, the natural man and the, and the spiritual man. But here, he's using those terms to describe the body in terms of its essential sort of characteristics as earthly on the one hand and thus belonging to the life of this present age and as heavenly on the opposite side, belonging to the life of the spirit in the age to come. So, so our resurrection bodies are spiritual, not in the sense of being immaterial, but supernatural. The, the transformed body that God will give us in glory is not composed of spirit. We're not ghosts, but that it is a body and soul adapted to an eternal existence under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's the picture. So for Paul, our resurrection bodies will be spiritual in the sense that they will bear the likeness of Christ in a transformed body and they will be fit for the new age. So, I mean, that's the picture God gives us. What will our resurrection bodies be like? They'll be imperishable unable to suffer decay. They'll be beaming with splendor, far surpassing anything we could attain to in this life. He says they're imbued with power, having a capacity to affect and accomplish all that we set our hearts to do. And they are spiritual through and through as we are animated and controlled perfectly by the Spirit of God. So I guess the picture is of our glorified bodies is a mode of existence that's purposeful, that is dynamic in the terms of uh, vibrant and active, and it, it's an ever-increasing crescendo of embodied life together with Christ, with his people, in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Paul ends in verse 44 with this statement, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And the explanation of how and why that must be leads us to the second point, which is a lot shorter, <laughs> in verses 45 to 49. He's shown us the parallels in nature to say, listen, you don't need to object to the idea of resurrection because the examples around us in life are, are obvious. These things, 
we, we don't question these things in all these other realms. Why would we question it to, when it comes to resurrection? Now he's going to show us parallels, not from nature, but parallels in Scripture. Parallels in Scripture. He seals his argument with the Word of God, as he often does. All these details that he's previewed about our resurrection bodies, they're not pulled out of thin air. He says, this is biblical. I, I didn't get this out of nowhere. He says in verse 45, So also it is written, the first man became a living soul. He says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The quotation in verse 45 is um, an allusion to Genesis 2 in verse 7 where God breathed into the man which he had formed, and he says the man became a living being. It's a quotation. What was the case for Adam is true for all of his descendants. The first Adam passed on his nature to those who came after him. Adam is the head and the source of a whole race of human beings, and his characteristics, particularly for us, a sin nature, are stamped on every member of that race. But in the same way, Christ, he calls him here the last Adam. And what is the case for the last Adam is true of all who are united to him. The last Adam passes on his nature to those who are connected to him. So by virtue of his work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, Christ, the last Adam, has passed on his resurrection life to all who are united to him in faith. Christ is the head then and the source of the whole of a race of spiritual children and consequently his characteristics are stamped on every member of that new humanity as believers. So that's why he says at the end Christ is a life-giving spirit. Not only does he set the pattern of those who are in him but he's the source of their life. He's the one that gives them spiritual life and eternal life that he's been talking, the kind of body and soul reality that he's been describing all, all throughout this chapter. It's the same term that we see in Ephesians 2 and verse 5, where Paul says, um, when you were dead in your transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It's the same term. And when he says God is a uh, Christ, the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Same exact term. He goes on then in verses 46 to 48 to reiterate the order of things. In case we're you know, tempted to get a little bit ahead of ourselves. He says, um, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Every human being, beginning with Adam and including Christ in his incarnation, has begun life in a natural physical body. When Christ took to himself a human nature and was born of Mary, he has no earthly father, but the body that he was given was like ours, except he was sinless. <laughs> That's the big difference. So he didn't inherit a sin nature from Adam, but everything else about his physical body was indeed uh, about the, his humanity, his true humanity, was similar to Adam. Uh, he says, and that's what comes first. We are earthy first. But then Christ was raised. 
He died. He rose from the grave. The body that he was given in his resurrection is a heavenly body fit for the age to come. You say, what does Christ look like now? He looks like his resurrect himself. He, he still has a physical body, except it is a glorified body. At the resurrection, his body was transformed into a spiritual body. This is the term that Paul uses. Because, because our natural descent is from Adam, we are part of those who are earthy. Yet because of our inheritance in Christ, we also have become partakers of him who is heavenly. So in Adam, we are earthy. In Christ, we have become positionally heavenly. And Paul's argument is simply this. All the descendants of Adam have natural bodies, and all the descendants of Christ will have spiritual bodies. One day, our natural bodies, inherited from Adam, will be changed into heavenly bodies inherited through Christ. This is the exact same reasoning that he had back in chapter uh, in verses 21 and 22. He's just coming back to the same theme. For since by a man came death, by, also, uh, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It's Romans 5, verse 12. It's the same reality, the same theme. Paul says, if one is true, the other is true. Each stands as a head of a new humanity. If you're in Adam, you have an earthly body to start with. And if you're in Christ, you will have a heavenly body. Is there any doubt about this? Any concern on Paul's part that this isn't going to happen? Or The answer, of course, in verse 49 is, there's no doubt whatsoever. Just he says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Paul's saying that throughout this life, as indisputably as we have been born with the earthiness of Adam, if you have back pain this morning, and you can't do things that you did 10 years ago, and you're broke down and you feel the weight of sin, physically and spiritually, as surely as you feel those things, as indisputably as you feel those things, you will indisputably bear the heaviness of our Lord if you are in him. That's what Paul's saying in verse 49. And just as unquestionably as we have done the one and are doing the one, living out the one, so unquestionably we shall experience the other. This is the, this is the hope that we are to eagerly anticipate. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And that, that makes it hard for us to conceptualize what will the future be like? How is it going to be? And so as we kind of wrap things up, sum things up here, I think three words kind of stand out in my mind as we think about our resurrection body. The first word, I guess, to maybe hang a thought on is contrast contrast. One thing that Paul, I think, makes clear is that what our bodies will be like in the future is, stands in distinct contrast to what our bodies are like now. And just as a seed is utterly distinct from the plant that comes from it, so our resurrection bodies will be distinct from the earthly bodies that we experience the world in now. So we have to embrace there's a, there's, a, there's a differing 
glory. There's a differing opinion, uh, uh, expression, I should say, of that uh, resurrection body. And so there's an emphasis, Paul's emphasis is on contrast. Second, a second word that stands out is, (laughs) in contrast to contrast, continuity. Right? So there is this contrast. There is this distinctive glory to our resurrection bodies that make them wholly different. But there's also a lot of carryover. And that, I think, is played out in um, the gospel record where we see Christ's resurrection body. Like, he's recognizable. He, he, I mean, people saw his face. He had two arms, you know, two arms and two legs and eyes and a mouth and, like, like people recognized him. He could show them the, the marks on his hands and the wounds in his side. Like there was a there was some uh, he was recognizable to the hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw him, and so his personal identity was distinct enough, had con- there was enough continuity between his glorified body and his his the, the body that went into the grave that when they saw him, they could say without a, a shadow of a doubt, he is risen. So there is continuity between our old life and our body and the body that we will receive in glory. So the first word that uh, maybe kind of summarizes everything is contrast. The second word is continuity. A third word that stands out is uh, completion. Completion. Our resurrected bodies will be made whole in every way such that Paul says we will be spiritual heavenly. So a resurrection body marked out then by a reversal of decay and splendor and power under the control of the Holy Spirit means your body isn't going to have any kind of reduced potential or capability in in glory. Instead, it argues that that potential and capability will be maximized far beyond our present experience. And I think that's why Jesus describing our future glory or the glory of his people in Matthew 13 and verse 43 says, and he's quoting Daniel, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. It's just a glorious perfection. We will be completely under the Spirit's control, we will walk in unbroken fellowship with Christ and with one another, made perfect in love, and all will be made new. I mean, that's the picture that we see. And, um, and if we can't quite wrap our minds around all of it, and I think there is an element of mystery that is meant to be there, the text reminds us to be content with what God has revealed to us and what he will do, and then leave the rest to him. (laughs) I mean, that's the thrust of Paul's argument. Your resurrection body will be strong. It will be vigorous. It will be healthy. It will be happy. It will be perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit. It will never perish. Um, All that you set your mind and heart to do, you will have a capacity to accomplish And that is something that as believers we can look forward to. That is something that we can can really be confident in and we can trust the Lord for and we can eagerly anticipate and we can sacrifice for and, this is important, that we can herald to others.
that there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection unto life, but there's also a resurrection unto judgment. And all the glories and beauty and majesty and, and vitality of our resurrection bodies for the believer, all of that is the opposite for the unbeliever. It is never-ending corruption, never-ending weakness, never-ending never ending, um, discipline and judgment. And so the, the message of the gospel is run to Christ and live. Live now in the spirit of this future hope, and one day that future hope will be realized. And that is the picture that we see in the final section in verses 50 to 58, where death is destroyed, um, the sting of death and the law of God that stand over the sinner is removed in Christ, and there is a glorious hope that awaits us, and therefore we are to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that that work is not for nothing. It is not in vain. And so I wish I could tell you more about your resurrected body, what it's going to look like, how old you're going to be, um, whether you'll have gray hair or not. I don't know. I don't know. The, the scriptures don't tell us. But what it does tell us, I'm content to, leave, to hold on to that and, uh, and press on, and, uh, and we'll find out the rest, I guess, when we get there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for this preview, if you will, of what is to come. And Lord, forgive us. I think we all wrestle with a, a sense of um, incomprehensibility of it all, and that makes us leery to really get excited. It makes us leery to um, look with anticipation. It, it tempts us to make heaven, trying to anyway, make and manufacture a heaven here on earth. And while you give us every good and perfect gift, they are nothing compared to what is to come. So help us to um, be that future-oriented people who are eagerly awaiting your return, eagerly awaiting that glory that is to come. And, uh, and then, Lord, give us the faith to persevere to the end. As Paul uh, wrote to Timothy that he had finished the course, he had run the race, he had won the prize, and, and uh, that we could, we could make that same statement at the end of our lives as well. Or guide and direct us, we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.